Okay, so we're continuing in the book of Ephesians. And as we're going through the book of Ephesians, we have to, again, remember what Paul is trying to do. Otherwise, if we dissect that from these little portions that we're, especially we're going to be coming up to here in in the weeks to come, we can lose the focus and the momentum that, that he is heading in. And Paul has been trying to get us to understand who we are in Christ, trying to get us to see that our lives are connected to the the new humanity that God has established in Jesus and that we are actually citizens of heaven. And, And as citizens of heaven, it affects how we conduct ourselves. It affects our priorities. And that's really his point throughout this whole book is to help us connect to that, to help us connect to the fact that this is who we are as people. And, you know, at times I think a lot of us can be drawn to certain places or or situations that make us feel close to God. Some people, they might go out in the mountains, some down to the beach. Some people will go to a church. They want to go into a sanctuary, go before an altar. Uh, People will go to Jerusalem because they want to visit the Holy Land because it gives them a sense that they are close to God. Oh, Jesus walked here. So you have this kind of connection and you feel close to him, feel close to God because of where you're at. And it's our desire to feel and to be close to God. And so we try and fill that with these different things. What can I do to get myself to feel that I'm close with God? And so many times we'll try and satisfy that desire by going to a place, going to a church, you know, to go to an altar, to to go to a space that's kind of special, that gives us an emotion that moves us. But really what we need to recognize is that it's not where we are that makes us close to God, it's who we are that makes us close to God. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. It's not that you are in a certain place. It's that you are now a certain people. And so the letter of Ephesians is like our tour to Israel. It's like our going to this place to take us on this journey so that we could have a richer experience with God so that we can sense and know his presence. It moves us to a practical side of Christian spirituality. And chapter five begins with a general rule of thumb. And we need to start, we'll read from chapter five, verse one through seven to start. I know we covered the first two verses last week, but we have to include them. Otherwise, again, it can be disconnected. It says, Follow God's example. Remember, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And so Paul starts off the beginning, this rule of thumb that we are to walk in love. We are to be like Christ as he loved us. And then next comes more detailed instructions regarding what we need to avoid or what we need to adopt. And notice how there's a contrast. It's highlighted in verse three, but among you. That contrast, it's kind of like, but rather, it's instead of. So you're to walk in love, but rather don't do this. And then we see that again later on. 
he tells us, nor should there be any obscenity in verse 4. And so we see this contrast. There is how we are supposed to live, and then there's the contrast of how we are not supposed to live. And he gives these detailed instructions. He tells us what to avoid, whatever is contrary to love, and adopt what is ever consistent with love. That's where he's trying to lead us to. He's trying to lead us to love, and he's trying to get us to avoid the pitfalls of things that aren't really love, but maybe have been mistaken by people. And Paul moves through these specific instructions that include a list of the do nots. You know, the play of opposites, the light, the darkness, wisdom and foolish, the list of do's and the list of don'ts, behaviors that are consistent with those who are identified with Christ. And we read it, but it's kind of sometimes difficult to really see what's going on. But there's some words here that I want to point out that take place because he doesn't have a whole lot of structure, but he does have some words that play on each other. And so we see he talks about immorality, Spelling doesn't count. Uh, impurity. And then he talks about greed. Then later on, he talks about obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking. Foolish talk. Here's an F. And then coarse joking. There's an E there. Um, later on, we're going to see in verse 9, he actually talks about goodness, righteousness, and truth. Verse 11, he's going to talk about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And songs, spiritual songs. And I want you to notice that there's a contrast. The immorality, impurity, and greed actually contrast to what he talks about. The goodness, righteousness, and truth. The obscenity, foolish talk. Coarse coarse joking is contrast to the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And, And so he's trying to paint this understanding of there is a way that we are supposed to live, a way that we're supposed to conduct ourselves, and then there is a way that contradicts what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live. And so he is going back and forth throughout this chapter trying to help us see the road that we are supposed to live and then the things that we are supposed to stay away from. And I want to start with actually greed, the last part of what he talks about here, the immorality, impurity, and greed. Because why is greed here? When you talk about these things, it almost seems like it's out of place. When you talk about sexual immorality of any kind, impurity, or of greed. And greed is something that I don't think we usually worry about. We can talk all we want to about sexual immorality and purity. Those things are easy to harp on. But greed is one of those ones that we really don't talk about very much. And we want to see why is it here? And as we look at this, we first encountered this word in chapter 3, verse 19, where he talks to us again about this attitude that we are not supposed to have, where he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Wait, that's not right. That's not the right place. 19, where is it? Anyway, I'll move on to that. I'll have to find it later. He does mention that again in chapter 3. Um, the word greed is an insatiable desire 
for more. When we talk about greed, we're talking about wanting something and wanting more of something, desiring more. It's a a consumer mentality. Greed is more passion than it is action. It's desiring for something, but the behavior that greed produces or inspires is negative. Greed is wanting something, but it's more the want than the actual having. But that want that you're desiring is actually leading into a negative place. Greed can affect or infect every pleasure, everything that we would want to possess, everything that we would want to aspire for. Greed can infect all of those things. Greed can infect your pursuit at work. If all you want is money, greed can dominate your work situation so that now all you think of is how can I get more and now it becomes more important than how you conduct yourself. Greed can conduct your relationship. And I think it's important to hear your relationship with people. I think it's important to hear to see that greed and sexual immorality or impurity are not far apart. They're actually very much connected because when he's talking about a sexual immorality, he's talking about consuming for just pleasure, desiring for yourself apart from what you would want for someone else. In other words, it's very selfish in this section. And really, greed is kind of the epitome of what God talks about in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servants, or his ox or his donkey, or anything belongs to your neighbor. Greed is wanting, even if it doesn't belong to you, and your desire to have it. Why? Just because I want it. And so greed becomes something that is important. In verse 5, the same word for greed can be translated the covetous man and is equated with idolatry. And so now we're getting to the heart. Anything, when it takes the place of God in our commitment and devotion, becomes an idol. Anything that takes the place of God in our commitment and devotion becomes an idol. So greed can be the things that we are committed to, devoted to, the things that we want, and that takes precedence over our relationship with God. And so greed is really at the heart of this, and idolatry is the end result of all these things that he's talking about. Living a life that is committed to, devoted to things outside of who God is. And so he's trying to get us to understand this dynamic. Deuteronomy has some interesting things regarding just how Moses talks about the idea of greed and dealing with how when the Israel would go and take the plunder of the pagan cities in Deuteronomy 13, 17, he says, nothing from that which is put under the band shall cling to your hand. And at first it looks like a strange thing. Did Moses mean to say your hand shall not cling to it? So anything that is put under the ban, you're not supposed to have that, shall not cling to your hand. What does that mean, cling to your hand? It's an odd expression and it kind of catches our attention and we have to think about it. You see, the danger of some things isn't how we hold on to them, but it's how they hold on to us. And so what Paul is wanting to warn us about is don't let these things hold on to your soul. Don't let them be the things that control you. Take away from your commitment or your devotion to God. And greed is kind of one of those things that we see, we want, we desire, and it doesn't matter it's right or wrong, that's not what's important. When greed is involved, it's about consuming. And it can be things as well as people. You see, we can purge things 
that will not let us go. We can get rid of these things that are holding on to us, and that's really what we want to do. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Luke 12, 15. Greed takes on all kinds of forms. Later on, Jesus says, Make for yourselves money or belts that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. Verse 33. Can you imagine a wallet that does not stop producing money? And the whole idea here is his point, of course, is that to have a spiritual investment and its returns. And so if you give yourself to these things, they will have constant value. They will have constant return, constant dividend. Greed, you will never get your return. You will desire, you will desire, and have nothing to show for it. And that's what we're having to contend with. Let's remember, Paul's list includes greed because it's really at the heart of what's going on. Greed or covetousness, however, is the one that we don't focus on as much, probably because it's the one that's more prevalent in all of us. But then let's consider the other things that he talks about. And let's keep in mind this idea of consumption, the idea of wanting things that will not produce anything, the idea of the contrast of what the immorality, impurity, the greed is in light of who we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus. Sexual immorality or any impurity, uh, filthiness, silly talk, or coarse joking, Impurity is anything that defiles or desecrates a person, a place, situation, or event. It's anything that desecrates, that brings down, that contaminates a person, place, situation, or event. Paul's use of it is similar to the way that Jesus used it. Remember, Jesus was responding to the Pharisees and they're always wanting to adhere to the the ritual part of the, the law. and They were trying to keep themselves pure by the law. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 11, It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. So it's these actions that cause the contamination of the human person. Not just keeping certain laws or not keeping laws. It's not what you eat. It's what comes out of your life, how you live. William Barclay suggests that the vulgar speech that's mentioned here in verse 4 is linked to the sexual immorality in verse 3, that dirty jokes, that coarse joking, that it's sexual in nature. And we have to think of where Paul is at and the world that he is living in at this time. Okay, here he is dealing with the Gentile and Roman culture where sexual promiscuity was rampant. They've uncovered walls and things from Pompeii after the volcano hit that were fully recovered, and the things that are on the walls or the things that they find on pottery, it's not just sexual in nature. It's not just like you would go to a car garage and see a girl with a bikini on. I mean, it's pornographic. It's showing sexual acts. And this was on the walls of the homes. This is the culture that the Greeks, the Romans had. This was a part of their culture. Not only was it commonplace and spread everywhere, but it was also a part of their religious expression where prostitution was a big part of producing so that the religious organizations could keep going. And so now the sexual immorality is connected to spirituality in the Greek and the Roman mind. If you're a spiritual person, you engage with prostitutes. And so imagine Paul coming from the Hebrew structure that has the laws against these things. And now you're entering a culture where it's just rampant and it's everywhere. 
I mean, you, there isn't a place in the United States that is as bad as most of the places that Paul went. This is Las Vegas on steroids and the worst conditions all the time in the commonplace. And so you imagine some of these like adult bookstores, if you were to go in there and see what's in there, just everywhere. Maybe there's some places in Amsterdam or things like that that I've heard about, but that was common. That's the world he lives in. And so now you're going here, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, try and represent who God is in this culture where this is just common, where it's just there in your face. And he's trying to get us to see that he's trying to see the contradiction between how they're living and how Christ wants us to live. And again, it goes back to this one of consuming. Verse 4, he reiterates verse 3, that even talking about these things is improper. It's not fitting. It's not just partaking of them. It's letting them consume us in our conversation. And Paul is not trying to stop. His whole point isn't, I want you to, you know, uh, stay away from anything that's sexual. His point is, I want you to walk in love. I, I want you to be people who have control of your life and don't let the things of life control you. I, I want you to be people who are committed to the well-being of others. And in this area, this is one of the areas where we can become most selfish, where we can become most likely to consume. The pornographic industry has, I think they estimate about $10 billion a year just in pornography. It's not as much as how many how much they consume in beer. Beer is the highest, I think. It's like eighty-eight billion dollars a year on beer. Yeah, I was imp- I was impressed. Um, but the whole idea is here is an industry that's all about consumption. Think what could be done with ten billion dollars if we wanted to help nations out, people who had no water to drink. Uh, a nation like Haiti. Think what could be done to their whole infrastructure if we would put a fraction of that money towards that. But instead, here's something that is used just to exploit, just to consume. It's very self-serving. Paul is trying to get us to see that this is contrary to the mindset that God is wanting us to live in. And and where there were people coming up and saying, you know, if you are a spiritual person, you'll engage in this sexual activity because that's spiritual. It's something you are supposed to do. God has given us over to pleasure. And Paul is saying, well, God has created us to enjoy, but you have taken that and used it for your own purposes. And again, that's where the greed comes in. Where now, instead of just having a relationship where you love and enjoy someone, you're using people for your own benefit. You know, the whole idea of marriage, it's something that I think it's interesting in our culture because what was marriage to Paul and to his culture? It was a contract. It was a commitment. It was an agreement. You will pay, you know, goats and oxen, to have this person to be your wife and your families will now be tied together. It was a big deal because you're not just marrying the person, you are connecting yourself, your livelihood to them and it's going to affect your relationships with that person. It was how they kept wars from happening. It was where our families are now united. We, we have this in common. It was something that was used to bring an agreement with each other. And so it was a big deal. 
It wasn't just like, yeah, let's get married. I love you. Oh, I love you too. Let's get married. No, it was basically committing your life and all that you had into this relationship. And so it was a contract, a covenant with this person. Why is that important? Because if you are going to give yourself to a person in this way, there has to be this kind of commitment to that person. It's important that we recognize that these things are connected to who we are. You know, Paul is making an emphasis on this, obviously, because of the society that they lived in. Casual sex and all kinds of practices that were associated with it. You know, to have them just be commonplace, they were flourishing in that society. And Paul is trying to get us to see that there is a detachment from the commitment when you just give yourself over to these kinds of things. You're, you're detaching yourself from commitment, <clears throat> and commitment is actually part of love. That you can't love something or someone without being committed to them. And so the sexual immorality is taking away the commitment aspect and engaging in, again, the greed aspect. Here, it needs to be pointed out that Paul isn't developing a Christian view for human sexuality. Not in these verses alone. You can go through Song of Solomon, the first three chapters of Genesis, some of the things in the prophets. There's a whole lot more you have to use to develop really what he would, what we would consider the Christian view of human sexuality. But he's providing, he's providing some specifics of conduct. First uh, Corinthians seven is another chapter where he talks about sexuality and the marriage relationship. You see, Paul didn't choose to address sexual sin because it's the most serious or evil sin. Rather, it illustrates how sin can work in a natural and a legitimate drives that we have and produce an enslaving consumption in our life. Here's something that is natural that can take over how we conduct ourselves. And Paul is talking about this so that we can see that if you don't take serious the things that you involve yourself in, then it will affect who you are. If you don't take serious the relationships you involve yourself in sexually, then those relationships will affect who you are as a person. We can't disconnect the things that we do with the people that we are. And so he's wanting us to consider these things. Our sexuality is something experienced as a unique and recognizable an important part of our being. The sexual drive is something that is there. But it's not the drive that is supposed to dictate what we do or how we use it. And it's kind of crazy because every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. But sex is the body. You know, and, and before you're a Christian... And before you're married, you don't kill people. Thou shall not commit murder. But then after you get married, you can engage in sexual activity. So it's unique in that, you know, well, it's like, well, now it's bad, but now it's good. And why is this one always bad, but this one's only bad sometimes, and then sometimes it's good. And so there is a struggle and how we fit this in our lives. And Paul is trying to help us in this struggle to see that what has to happen is this activity has to be done in a way that brings the commitment to you, to God, and the love for the other person. And so we want to understand the underlining concern is that we resist being conformed 
to a consumer mentality. We resist being conformed into a, a, a person who gives themselves to whatever feels good. I, I'm going to resist the, the pull to do whatever I feel like doing. Why? Because I belong to Christ. I am no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I need to glorify God with my body. Not just my mind, not just my heart, but my body. Why? Because my heart, my mind live in this body. And what I do with this body affects the heart and affects how I think. And this is one of those areas where if we don't bring constraints to ourselves, it will contaminate who we are and how we think. And pretty soon, it's just a matter of, well, I'm going to give myself to this. Why? Because it feels right for me. Because this is what I want. And now my life is being dictated not by... Christ, not by even my mind, but just by my body. And those other things follow along with that. Instead, we want to continue to move forward in our transformation. We want to move forward. If I'm becoming like Christ, then it has to include the things that I do with my body. You see, a lot of people, sexuality isn't their worst temptation. It's not the worst thing for some people. In fact, I think some of our more difficult struggles are with pride or with greed or with envy. Those are the hidden ones. The sexual one is kind of an obvious one. It's something we can identify pretty readily. But the other ones are hidden and kind of underneath. In fact, they're subtle sometimes that by comparison, they might even seem like temptations to sin. But again, greed, arrogance, Malice. Those things are taking us to the same place that the sexual immorality can take us, to a place where it is just about what pleases me. And so it's important to see that at the heart of this isn't just don't have sex. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying don't act like the Gentiles do. Don't conduct yourself in a way that's immoral, impure, or greedy obscene, coarse joking and and foolish talk. Instead, we want to be good, righteous, tell the truth. We want to have psalms, hymns, spiritual songs influence our conduct instead of the coarse jesting. We want our, our words to be uplifting and help people instead of just always leading them to a place of something shameful. And verse five, it says, if the Ephesians knew with certainty, why did Paul have to tell them? I mean, it says there in verse 5, for of this you can be sure, you can be certain. No moral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. If they could be sure of that, why is he telling that? Because those sins were still present. Those things were still there evident in the church at this time. They're still evident in the church at this time. There there isn't a difference. Around and within the Gentile churches, this was common. And such, remember in 1 Corinthians, such were some of you. Paul's wanting to push us to a place, I know where you live. I know how easy it is to act this way, but you are different. And so you're supposed to live different. There were also people who taught and promoted the free sexual expression. It was, again, their way of telling you that this is how you worship God is by giving yourself to the pleasures. And so he would say, let, there, let no one deceive you with empty words in verse 6. Don't let anyone trick you with their words. And, and I was thinking about empty words And so empty words can be even words like, I love you. If the love isn't connected to the covenant and commitment. Oh, I love you. I want to be with you. Why? Because I love you. 
but there's no commitment. That's an empty word. I don't really love you. I really just want you. Because love will make the commitment, will make the covenant, will have the the connection that can't be broken. And so empty words are words that have no substance. And it's so interesting in where we're living at right now because, you know, with the gay marriage and we hear, well, we want love to win. But not too long ago, we don't need any piece of paper to tell us we love each other. Why do you need the piece of paper now? See, there is an understanding that commitment has to be a part of love. And so now there is the push to, oh, no, there has to be marriage. Why does there have to be marriage? Because we want to be like this. We, we want to be established like this. And it's kind of a dichotomy because before no one wanted the marriage and now it becomes a symbol of love. And it's just confusing the world that we live in where the things that we are being pushed towards and pulled towards conflict with each other. My daughter is taking some classes and she's having to discuss um, just the whole thing that's happening with Bruce, Caitlyn, Jenner, um, you know, the, the sexual identity and how you identify a person and all that's involved with these things. And it's so interesting how so much of it becomes very self-focused. How it becomes, I want people to see me as this. I want to be recognized as this. And we don't see this struggle of identity in, in people who are just struggling to survive. People who are looking for their next meal don't worry about their sexual identity. It's kind of like Franklin, um, Victor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, how he talked about in the concentration camps, when you're about to die, you don't care about meaningless things. Everything else kind of gets brought to the focus and the things that are real important become even more important. And what a tragedy it is that now, Billy, we've trivialized the sexual aspect of relationships instead of made it something that is useful for commitment, recognizing that it, it's important. You know, I'm kind of saddened. It's kind of surprising in some ways by the nonsense that comes from people when they talk about relationships um, you know, the lack of commitment in the relationships we have with a person, how it can become something so easily given up or easily taken up with someone else. It's tragic because what happens is we short sell ourselves. I, I think of people who cannot commit to a relationship when things go wrong. And they say, I'm out of here. And the problem is that the depth of relationship will never grow until it goes through the difficulties. The close relationship I have with Corrine right now is because of the difficulties we went through. That's forced us have to deal with difficult things, things that are hard to deal with, things that I don't want to talk about, but if I'm going to stay in this commitment and keep this covenant true, I'm going to lean into them even though they're uncomfortable. And sometimes these things can be the most uncomfortable things to talk about, especially even in the Christian world because sexuality is so taboo. We don't talk about sex. Oh, I don't want to have the sex talk. I don't want to go to church and hear someone talk about sex. That should stay at home. The problem is it doesn't go anywhere. 
And so we've kind of said, okay, it's bad unless you're married, and now it's okay, but let's not talk about it. And now people are like, well, how do we deal with it? How do I deal with it in a relationship? How do I deal with it emotionally? How do we deal with it when there's problems in this area? How do I talk about those things? And if we don't talk about them at all, then it becomes more problematic. And so Paul is giving us some guidelines again, but he's not going in depth and talking about all the entails in the sexual relationship. And so he tells us there that we are not to be partakers with them. With them means the Gentile world that was given over to this kind of worship, this kind of uh, sexual immorality, that we are to have a different connection or partnership with God, a different destiny. We're, We're headed in a different direction, and so we're supposed to be living in a different way. And why is our bodies so important? Why are our bodies so important? Why is it so important that this be something that we take control of? You see, the body wasn't important to the Greek philosophers. It wasn't important to the Gnostics, those people who believed that the spirit was all that mattered, the body didn't matter, and so you could do whatever you want. It wasn't important to them, but it's important to us because first and foremost, we have to recognize that we were created good. And then the incarnation of Christ produced new possibilities of what it means to be good as physical beings. We live in a moral universe where there is right and wrong, and our body is subject to that moral universe. And we have to recognize that God has entered and continues to enter the realm of our flesh and blood existence, and it happens with how we conduct ourselves. The things that we say, James would say, you know, your words have the ability to set the world on fire. How you speak, how you act is how we know who you are. It's not just how you feel. And so many times if we could look at the things that we do, we would see more accurately who we really are. What do you give most of your time to? What is most of your thoughts focused on? What do you involve most of what you do with? Because that is shaping who you are more than what you think. It's actually the things that you do. Now, you have to change how you think to change how you do. But if you want to know who you are, look at what you do. And that'll tell you who you are. That'll tell you where you are with God. It's not a secret. And so God has entered our realm. He has shown us how to live with a body, how to conduct ourselves. It is with our bodies that we are able to serve God, serve people. It's with our bodies that we're able to commit to God, commit to people. And so what we do with our bodies is important. Even for Paul, this isn't about being morally uptight or sexless or prudish. It's about our bodies being instruments for God's will, service, and honor. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable form of worship. Why? Because that's who we are. Don't be transformed or conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our bodies become a sacred space in and through which God acts and God speaks. It's important that we recognize that God is wanting to take our lives, our conduct, and allow it to be an example. I know for me and my family, There was only one marriage that worked growing up. Well, there's my grandparents, but they had some struggles. But there was, between my aunts, even my mom, and the struggles she had, there was only one relationship that worked, and that was my uncle's. 
And I can remember thinking, even as a child, if I get married, I want that kind of a marriage, not that kind of a marriage. I want one that works, not one that doesn't work. You see, I want my kids to see what a relationship can be like, not see the results of what one shouldn't be like. I want the people around me to know what love looks like in a marriage compared to what they know it looks like or doesn't look like outside of these guidelines that God has set up. I worked with these guys in construction and I can remember them talking about all the the girls they were going to go see and do this and these were married men with kids. And you're thinking, wow, okay, that that's interesting and they're just carrying on like it's no big deal. And then you know and you find out that the wife finds out and then they're in hot water, but they stay together because of the kids. And you think, I don't want that kind of a marriage. And you see, he goes on and he says, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient, not because God is seeing the act and saying, oh, I'm going to judge that act. It's because the act itself incurs the judgment that God has established in a moral universe. God's wrath comes on those things because we live in a world that has the right and the wrong. We, we live in a, a place where how we conduct ourselves affects what we receive. And, and so when we give ourselves over to this immoral living, we reap the consequences of it. And you can't escape that. Even if you lie to your wife, even if you keep it from your kids, you can't escape what it does to you because it's happening in the world you live in. It's going to affect your conscience. It's going to affect how you feel and and the things that take place in you. It's going to affect the things and way you conduct yourself. You can't escape what you do and who you are. It is always going to have an effect. And, And so if we want to have a life that is connected to God, it includes how we live with our bodies. And it's not like you better do this or you're going to catch some disease and you better stop doing that or that God's going to send you to hell. It's you are going to incur the wrath of God. And that's not him sitting there going, oh, I'm going to get you for that. It's that you cannot live separated from God and not incur the effects of what happens when you're separated. It will affect us. And if we would understand this, it would affect a lot of what we do. Not just in the sexual situation, again, dealing with the greed and the things that are there. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. And Paul is again trying to give us the understanding that we are here as a new humanity to give a new definition of what it means to be a human being. And that includes people who have restraint, people who have commitment, people who walk in love, people who aren't greedy, people who are here to build up, to edify, to do what's good, what's right, truthful, to encourage with psalms, songs, spiritual songs, to help people move forward in their life and not just be about how we can use people to satisfy our own lives. And that's kind of the contradiction that Paul is talking about here. And really, the casual sex is a parody of the real thing. Every time two people make love physically, their bodies are saying we belong to each other totally, completely, and forever. And if it isn't true, then at some point, that's going to come out. The lie will show up. And so we don't want to give ourselves over to a lie. We don't want to live a false life. We want to live the true life. We want to put off the false self, put on the true self, which is being formed like Christ day by day. Let's pray.
Father, I know that this topic is one that is awkward, Lord. It's one that is prevalent in society, but it is um, one that is, I think, avoided in church. It is one that is has caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of discomfort. And there's a lot of problems that we just don't talk about because we have suppressed this conversation in our communities, God. And so I pray that, Lord, we wouldn't resist conversation, but we would push into healthy conversation, that we wouldn't make this taboo, but we would illuminate what you desire for our bodies and for the sexual relationships so that we can have honest discussions that are helpful, God. And I pray that that would be something that would be evident in how we conduct our lives that would be seen. And I ask you to just help us to engage in this more fully and more openly in a way that would be helpful, Lord. And I do ask this in Jesus' name. There is a book I'm reading that I highly recommend uh, by Deborah Hirsch. It's called Redeeming Sex, and it's very good. I haven't finished it yet, but everything I've read in it is very good as far as having open discussions about this. You know, we say things, and it makes us blush, but they are things that are common even in Scripture. When you go through the Song of Songs, that's in the Bible for a reason. And it's a sexual book. And people who try and make it just about God and, you know, the church, you can't really do that. It's not there. And so it's important that there is understanding this is a conversation that God has and wants to have with us. And we need to be able to have it in a way that's honest, open, and healthy. All right. God bless you guys.